On the evening of the day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands at his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and, sought to, and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. This is God's word. All right, you may be seated. I think we just sent Danny into fear by making her read in front of people. That's what I hear. All right, it's time to dismiss kids. Uh, back in the uh, back there by the front door is for our older ones, three and up. Back in the uh, very back room, back by uh, the pool table and such, is the uh, little ones room. So feel free to take your kiddos back there. Um, as I said earlier, we are in a, uh, in a year that's really uh, devoted to the idea of discipleship, and we're going through this because we recognize that people here had questions, differing views about discipleship, and uh, we wanted to work that out from kind of some of our convictions as leaders and from the scriptures. And so we're working through that um, from a lot of different standpoints. We're talking uh, for the first part of the year about how Jesus uh, discipled people. We're going to look at other examples of people discipling in the New Testament. We're going to look at Paul. We're going to look at Old Testament uh, discipling examples. You're going to get all kinds of stuff throughout the year on discipleship. We're going to take a little break before the election and uh, talk about what it looks like to be a disciple who has, you know, engages in politics. Um, and so, again, I think I've said this every time, probably won't be the, uh, the political speech you've heard before, so I'm excited about it, and I think you should come out. It won't be a political speech, actually, at all. Um, and then we're going to take uh, a little break in the summer for the Psalms. So it's going to be a, it's a different year than what we've done in the past, and I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be good. And uh, yeah, that's what, that's what we're going to be up to. So I am going to, uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray and jump us into this, uh, into this next section where we're going to discuss John, especially John 20, 24 to 29. Let's pray. Father, I want to praise and thank you for the, the ways that you've revealed yourself in your word and also the ways that you've uh, showed us what your disciples were like. It's actually very consoling to me to see the struggles in the disciples' lives, and I thank you you didn't hide any of that from us. You didn't give us these amazing religious figures that, um, that we had to aspire to be like, but that you gave us people, um, your, your disciples, who saw you uh, witness to you despite all of the, the failures and misgivings that they had. I thank you for how patient you are with us. I pray that you would encourage us 
um, give us fuel to believe and hope uh, from this time and uh, tools uh, to think about how we disciple others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've said kind of working definition for uh, discipleship this year is discipleship is following someone who's trying to follow Jesus. And uh, today, it's how Jesus discipled people with doubts. And of course, you know, who, who are you going to look at? You're going to look at old Thomas, right? That's the, he's the famous uh, doubting guy we've been taught, um, doubting Thomas. You don't have to be a Christian to know about doubting Thomas. Uh, he's right up there with, you know, negative Nancy in the world. Not to be confused with our Nancy, trust me. I, uh, it's even in my notes to say, not you. Um, so, uh, yeah, everybody knows who Thomas is. For some, he's relatable. People will say, you know, you, you go like, what, you know, what faith do you profess to? I'm kind of a doubting Thomas. I don't really, I can't really ascribe to any of them. Uh, for some, it's kind of repulsive, like, you know, don't be a doubting Thomas. You know, don't, don't do that. And for some, uh, it's kind of a joke, like, you know, the U of A should have won, but Doubting Thomas over here was talking about how well, uh, you know, ASU plays in the second half, and it's probably too soon to start talking about that, I'm sure. But, uh, but do we really understand Thomas? That's one of the questions I want to get at today. And uh, do we really understand him, and what can we learn about discipleship from Jesus's interactions, especially with Thomas uh, and with all of his other disciples, especially as I've kind of looked at this through the book of John? So, First off, I feel like I need to address something, though, and that's that not all doubt's the same. Uh, In this passage, Jesus is addressing a particular type uh, of doubt in his disciple Thomas, Um, and and you won't discover in John 20 the way to address all doubts. I I feel like that just needs uh, needs to be said. Not all doubts are assuaged by saying, do not disbelieve, but believe, um, you can't show to all doubting people what Jesus uh, showed Thomas. We need, to, we need to understand that. We need to wrap our minds around that. There's, there's a lot of types of doubts. So there's philosophical doubts that would doubt not only the resurrection of Jesus, but the claim that there's any knowable truth or transcendence at all. And that's not Thomas. Uh, philosophically, Thomas has Jewish, uh, ancient Jewish philosophical assumptions. Um, he was, was raised uh, within those. He knew Jesus. He was mentored by Jesus. None of that threw him off. And he had those things presupposed and built in that really would have lent him uh, to believing in a lot uh, more than some people in our context, uh, perhaps. I'm encouraged that John, in the letter that he's writing, is not writing to people with those presuppositions. He's actually writing to Greeks who didn't assume all of that. But when you're talking to people with philosophical doubts, you got to get at the presuppositions, the, the, the beliefs behind the beliefs behind the beliefs. You really do, or else you're just going to be speaking another language. And you're going to have to talk about those things, and probably one of the things you're going to have to do is ask, you know, where do those assumptions lead? Um, and if you really followed them to where they lead, are you living consistent with those, and can you? Those are good questions to ask. Um, and then, are you sure about your presuppositions is a good conversation to have. Um, and a lot of times, those lay kind of unexamined. So that's, that's a whole other type of doubt. Um, there's a doubt that comes from ignorance. Uh, that's just the, I just don't get it. I've never heard it explained kind of doubt. And um, I've told a story before here of when I was on a trip. I was in Australia and ended up uh, kind of at a Bible study group that brought in international students. And 
was talking to this Japanese exchange student. We had a major uh, kind of language barrier and some very simple things about Christianity were shared. And the guy looked over and said, okay, I believe that. And I was like, no, no, you don't. Because um, I just said, God came in human form and died on a cross and rose from the dead. You don't, do you, you do you understand what I'm saying? He said, yeah. Okay. And, uh, and I'm still like, I don't, I'm not really sure you do. And we'd been given these surfers Bibles, um, which I was like, this is the cheesiest thing ever. And I opened up the surfers Bible to this page and there's an Asian surfer on it. And the guy says, that's my favorite surfer. I said, oh. <laughs> and he said, is he a Christian? And I went, I think so. <laughs> you know, and uh, <laughs> let's read it. And he is. And the guy was just like ecstatic. Um, and seriously, every th- I tried to talk him out of being a Christian three times, I think. And he was like dead. He just, somebody had to just go, look, it's this, this, this. And he went, okay. He didn't have like the, philo- the philosophy of it wasn't getting in his way. I mean, I don't know where he's at today, but in that case, it was just nobody's ever explained this to me before. Um, there's a doubt, I would say, that grows with uh, distance and time. I mean, many of us, I think, could name names of those uh, of friends of ours who, who we experienced as loving Jesus uh, very much, uh, who, or at least, you know, so it seemed and life got busy, things got difficult, um, prayer, Bible reading seemed like it wasn't really an important uh, part of the day, uh, kind of an apathy toward God sets in or, or anger with God. Um, maybe some sins were committed and they felt like they didn't, it wasn't, not, all the terrible things didn't happen. Like, oh, I had sex outside of marriage and look, I wasn't struck by lightning. And they went, oh, I met friends of, of other faiths and they're not insane. They're not crazy. And they found themselves just saying, I don't know, uh, Christianity kind of takes a lot of my life and demands a lot of work, and I'm not so sure, so I think I'm just going to take a break. And uh, they never came back. We see situations like that a lot. And, and honestly, at Mission, like that's, that situation right there is one of our top-tier priorities, is to talk to people in that boat um, and to invite them to stay connected. But that wasn't Thomas. Um, Thomas was a devout disciple of Jesus. And Thomas just saw his most powerful mentor and teacher who he had concluded was the Messiah, the the savior of his people um, from everything. And he had followed him for years And he had just seen him crucified on a Roman cross. He'd seen his side punctured and blood and water gush out. He'd seen him hauled off to a tomb, utterly disgraced. And now his friends, including John, who wrote this gospel, and some guys that had been walking on a road to Emmaus, and a couple of women, including Mary, who'd visited the tomb, saying not only was he not in his tomb anymore, but that they'd talked to him recently. And Thomas says, there's one way I'm going to entertain that as possible. And that is, if I see the nail marks 
and where he was pierced. By the way, the other disciples all got to see that, they said the day before. And they probably told him that. They said, he appeared to us and we saw the nail prints in his hands and we saw the place where the spear you know, punctured his side. And they believed that because Jesus' crucifixion was unique. He was probably the only man at any point recently crucified quite like that. A lot of people who were crucified were tied up to stakes. It was about asphyxiation. It was about having all the weight of your body like slowly suffocating you and you would push yourself up with your legs and the way that they would speed that along is they would break your shins so you couldn't push up any longer. Jesus did not have broken legs. Jesus was nailed to his cross, all of his disciples said. And Jesus died, and that was confirmed by a puncture wound in his side. So if I see that man with those wounds walking around, talking to me, then I will believe this. And I think this, Thomas, is a man who wants to believe this. And Jesus, of course, comes to him, so John says, and says something to the effect of, here I am, here are my scars. Look, place your hand in the wound in my side. You asked to see me, so doubt no more and believe. And Thomas does not say, whoa, you are alive, right? No. Or weird. (laughs) How did this happen? Or am I dreaming? This is insane. No, none of that. He says, my Lord and my God, which might be like the strongest acceptance of who Jesus is we see anywhere in the Bible. And Jesus says, you see, and now you believe. And then he said, blessed, and that word is like happy, happy, will those who don't see and yet believe be. That's us. And the people John was writing to in the Roman province of Asia. This wasn't a guilt-trip-ridden, faithless exchange. This wasn't Jesus going, oh, now you believe. It wasn't. That's not what it was. It was a reasonable desire for evidence. Met with a powerful provision of that exact evidence and a commission to share the evidence with people who wouldn't be able to see because this was an actual historical life, death, and resurrection. And the only people who got to see this were those who were there. Only they got to see. So Thomas asked to see Jesus and the scars, and Jesus loves him enough to come to him and to give him what he needs to have faith. You see that? Thomas didn't have to go find Jesus. Thomas did not have to try harder or buckle down or read more Torah or go to more synagogue. Jesus came and gave him what he needed to have faith and then sent him and commissioned him out to bless those who hadn't seen. 
with a powerful message we hold to this day. I don't think we have a doubter in Thomas, actually. How did Jesus disciple such a missionary? The kind of guy that when he sees what he asks for, he says, my Lord and my God. How did Jesus disciple this guy? I see a few, a few uh, key things for I've got here. Jesus discipled people who were wrong for years until they understood. I get this especially from John 11. It's kind of an interesting moment where uh, they have, as a group, perceived that Jesus is in danger if he goes to the city of Bethany, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. And they get news that Lazarus is sick, and Jesus knows that, in fact, Lazarus is dead. And he suggests they go to see him. And the disciples are kind of back and forth. And at the end, Thomas says, let us go that we may die with him. Now, there's a little debate out there. Some people think Thomas is talking about dying with Lazarus, but he's not. Chances are, most commentators say he's talking about dying with Jesus. He's saying, if Jesus is in danger, let's go die with him. Um, This is not the sheepish, faithless guy we've imagined, right? The guy who's like, I'm not going to believe that. This, is, this guy is like down to die. And why would he be down to die? Because he, like almost all of the disciples, were pretty sure that they were a part of a major political movement that was going to engage in warfare in which they would get their power back, preserve their way of life, and the future of their children and their families. And if they had to die to do it, Like many other people throughout history, they said that would be a valiant death that I would be proud to to die for this cause. Like Thomas would have gone to Richmond, maybe, right? Like I have got weapons and I will use them if you come against me. Maybe. This dude was in for a fight. And Jesus wasn't going to do any of that. Jesus, of course, is talking about going to raise someone from the dead. That's his plan. Lives will not be lost. Jesus will exhibit his power over death, which Thomas and all of them are really going to need to see and believe in in order to believe that Jesus can defeat death one day in his own body. They are going to need to see this. Thomas and all of them didn't get it, but Jesus walked with them through years of thinking it was about something completely different. Years. I think about people who've walked with me. Some of the things you guys might know of me as a pastor, you're like, wow, Andy has these real convictions about X, Y, and Z. I didn't always have these. At my old church, like, I don't, if you get in deep in here, here in the church, you'll know, like, I'm all about elders. Like, we've got to have elders. Here's what elders do. The old church I worked at for six years, when I got there, I thought having elders was the stupidest thing in the world. I seriously thought I could run a church personally by myself without anybody getting in my way. That's where I was at. That was ridiculous. They walked with me for years, and I slowly started to see all the holes in my line of thought. 
I hope I don't have to work too hard to apply this uh, to our discipleship of one another. A disciple, see, isn't the one you find who's so far along who you decide is ready. A disciple is someone who's willing to follow and learn. And they might be very wrong. If you want to disciple people, assume you will walk with people for a long time, even people who don't get it. And you might assume as a discipler that you're going to figure out you don't get some stuff. Right? For a long time, you'll walk with people, and they'll walk with you, maybe a lifetime. Plan to be in people's lives for years. And this is why I'm probably going to keep pounding on this. Discipleship is not a program or a book that you hand off. It's a life shared with somebody else. Um, David Brooks, who's a PBS NewsHour conservative guy, um, recently has expressed some opening of his life to Christianity. And he, uh, he was interviewed, and they were talking about what's happened since he's kind of started to share that. And he apparently has gotten hundreds of books in the mail from people. Um, a lot of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And he said, it's really annoying. Okay? So David Brooks obviously loves books. He writes them, right? But he was like, if you want to engage with me in my faith, please don't send me a book. The thing that he said has made the most difference is this family that he knows gathers people together who need a home and need a place and need to have dinner, and they've invited him into that. And that's what he said has been the most impactful. Um, quick side note here. If you, if you went to Bookman's and wanted to look up something on Thomas, you would see books by Elaine Pagels. Have you seen any Elaine Pagels books? Um, she's, she's big on Thomas. And she, her, her conclusion is that John is hard on Thomas because they have, a, they have a difference in their theology, and John's trying to make Thomas look bad. Um, I listened to Elaine Pagels's story, and uh, there's always a story behind doubt. Elaine Pagels, her dad had hard Christian parents who were difficult to deal with. She lost her son at age six. She lost her husband Um, it's really hard for her to wrap her mind around some of this stuff. So she, she sees John as being hard, or Thomas as being, John as being hard on Thomas. But I think, and I'll get back to her a little bit later, I think John is hard on all the disciples. Because there are a lot of, uh, of shallow questions. There's this, um, In John 14, this is my second thing. John 14, Jesus patiently endured shallow questions. Um, Jesus in John 14 is uh, explaining how he has this new commandment to love one another. There's, There's a lot here. I can't read it all or I'd just be like, it'd be story time with Andy. But he's explaining this new commandment and he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And all of the disciples are thrown off by this statement, and it enters into this funny little conversation that they have. And I'm going to elaborate on that little conversation. Um, Because Peter, um, and this is where I'm saying John is hard on all of them. Peter says, I will follow you anywhere you go. And Jesus looks at him, and what does he say? You will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter's like, 
Ouch. And then Jesus starts to explain how he's going to prepare a place for his people. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And we tend to hear that and we go, yeah, it's like, this is like a spiritual place he's talking about. But Thomas, though, pipes in. And he goes, wait, this is my paraphrase. Where are you going exactly? And I, and I imagine him kind of thinking along these lines, Jesus, if you're going to prepare a place for us, but you don't tell us where the place is, we're not going to be able to find you. So this camp or whatever you're preparing, like, how are we going to get there? Right? That's Thomas's, that's where he's at. And then Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I imagine them all looking at each other. And Philip goes, okay. Can you show us the Father? Maybe he's thinking, if the Father is where you're going, and you show us where he is, while we're on our way there, we could capture the way to this camp that you're going to, maybe like a map, which we're all kind of asking for, since you aren't telling us where you're going, and then we won't have to look around so hard all over the wilderness, right? And he looks around at the other disciples, and I see them going, yeah, it's a good try. <laughs> see, Jesus is on this deep spiritual level, right? Like, I'm going, and I'm going to another dimension that you're not going to be able to understand until they break into, like, quantum mechanics someday, and then maybe you'll open up your minds to this. He's there, and they're just, I, I seriously think they're, like, thinking about the areas that they know, and they're like, is he going to be behind the mountain over there? Or, I mean, that'd be a decent spot. I mean, <laughs> he's on this spiritual plane. They're just trying to figure out where this dude's going to go, camp and hide. And they're like, Thanks for making us a tent. Could you just tell us where it is? And this is one of many Q&A sessions that go less than smooth where not everything is clicking. And you know how Jesus kind of lands the whole plane of this thing is he just, <laughs> he kind of tells them that someday he's going to give them their whole, his Holy Spirit and they'll understand all things. <laughs> I love that. He's just like, I'll send my spirit to you and you'll understand all these things someday. Jesus he trusts that his spirit is going to make things click for them. He, he knows it. And so he offers them deep spiritual truths, even when they can't get it and they aren't comprehending it. And he doesn't stop walking with them just because they don't get it. All kinds of questions. And then he's patient. He offers mercy upon mercy. Of course, uh, Thomas, who'd said, you know, unless I see these things, I won't believe. Jesus showed up, you know, for Thomas, and he showed him uh, the nail prints and the, the side and let him put his hand in his side. But he showed up for him again, for Thomas again, and not just for Thomas, but for John, uh, the Apostle John and his brother James and Peter and Nathaniel. And this time, the, the disciples had all gone back to work, which was likely an expression of kind of having resigned to some degree. Um, the, the mission that Jesus had called them to. They thought they were walking away from their work, from their nets, from fishing. They were going to follow him all the days of their life. And now 
he has shown himself to them, kind of entered a room without opening the door, breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, it says in John, which is all kind of mysterious. Like, what does that mean? You know, they got the Holy Spirit. I mean, that probably is why they even believe that Jesus was alive again. That's probably the only reason. But at this point, they probably kind of concluded that following Jesus the way they had before was over. And so James and John's dad, Zebedee, had a fishing business, and they'd kind of gone back to fish with him. The fishers of men thing maybe was temporary. And they went back to the Sea of Tiberias, also known as the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus comes to them very similarly to how he came to them in Matthew 4 and Luke 5. In Matthew 4, he comes to them at the same Sea of Galilee. And he's calling them for the first time. And they leave their nets and they follow after him. And in Luke 5, and maybe the same lake, is it the same event? Matthew just left out the massive catch of fish that they got, maybe, or maybe it happened a couple of times, which would maybe reinforce my point, but Luke records that Jesus comes to them, and he gets on the boat, and they're trying to fish on one side, and he tells them to throw their nets on the other side, and they get this huge haul of fish that's, like, ridiculous, like, this is impossible, and Peter bows before Jesus and said, I am too sinful to be in your presence. And he, and he declares his faith in him as Jesus gave him this amazing proof. And now after his resurrection, he appears at the, at the shore of the same lake and they're out fishing and they're fishing and they're not getting anything. He tells them to throw their net in a different part of the lake and they get 153 fish, which are the weird little details that John just throws in there to go, by the way, this isn't abstract. 153 fish. And don't you see what he's doing there? He's reminding them of the day when they first believed. He's taking them back to the day when they first believed. He's showing Peter, who was in the boat the first time with him, and he's saying, remember when you concluded I was God and you were sinful, and I called you to give your life to fishing for men? I'm still here with you, and my call on your life is the same despite your fall and your denial of me. And he reinstates Peter, right? He, he says, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Three times and he reinstates him. And who's watching and taking note of that whole event? It's Thomas, who wrote the book we're reflecting on. And Nathaniel, who in Jesus' first interaction was very similar to Thomas, to Nathaniel, he said, did you believe just because I saw you under the fig tree, you're going to see greater things than these. You'll see heaven opened and the angels ascending and descending. Thomas wasn't the only one in need of help and proof and reminders. All the disciples were, and Jesus mercifully gave it to them again and again and again, these unsure, doubting, meandering disciples. Elaine Pagel's book got a, uh, a response from a writer named Christopher Skinner who said John, he had a book called John and Thomas, Gospels in Conflict. And he said he thinks the reason John cast all the disciples as full of doubt and failure was because John was teaching us more about the character of Jesus and showing us the doubts and struggles of the disciples. 
It's rare in ancient religions for leaders to be portrayed so poorly. But it's a powerful proof that John would have provided to ancient Greek people who had more of a mind like ours. They wanted to see wisdom and power and eloquence. They wanted to see everything make sense. And he's showing them people who had to see the marks, who weren't sure about this God, this powerful God that would come down um, and die, to whom it didn't make sense. He was saying, look, the disciples who saw him, even they needed these proofs. The men weren't elevated because their power, ability, and wisdom The men were just pointing to Jesus. So how do we apply this? I'd say expect those you disciple to need mercy upon mercy as you have needed mercy upon mercy. You can only give patience when you've received the patience of God. And like the disciples, we don't present to the world a doubt-free, failure-free church We don't have one. Everybody knows it. Like, go ask around. Everybody knows we stink. Like, everyone knows we're not doing that great of a job at being Christians. Right? So get over it. Like, present humble hearts and a merciful Savior. That's compatible. Stumbling people, merciful Savior. Lastly, Jesus offered himself, so we must offer ourselves doubts and all. I was raised by a doubter, um, and I'm one. If you've read, I've got a little book about my dad. If There's a chapter in there called Faith, and it, you know, it's really about doubt. Um, my dad persevered doubt in his life. He wondered about the whole thing. Um, I would ask him about, you know, his, his faith in God, his beliefs, and never once was he like, that's just the way it is. He would go, I don't know. That was one of his favorite phrases, I don't know. But he kept walking with Jesus. You know, the whole, why would a good God allow suffering? That was very personal for my dad. In his early life, he had a father who was just, mean and like just tore him to shreds emotionally. In the middle of his life, he almost lost everything. And I mean, we were so close to the verge of like homelessness for a little bit. It was rough. We lived in a, in a motor home. And then he kind of got it together and he did everything he could to be healthy. That was one thing he was always committed to. Like every grain and every like every health thing he could And then he died of cancer, which was the thing he was trying to avoid. And at the end, and he would he would talk about all this. You know, I would say, "Dad, how you doing?" He goes, "I can't believe I got cancer. I did everything." And at the end, I said, "Dad, is there anything you're praying these days?" And he said, "What, "What else can I pray? But come, Lord Jesus." It's like all he had. And that's how I was discipled. Um, I've thought about that many times. I know a lot of people whose parents were so darn sure about everything, right? And they're done with it. We're on the verge. 
Somehow my dad didn't tell me I don't know to about every question I asked and I became a pastor. <laughs> you can do that, right? You can tell people you don't know. Maybe people will be all right. When I was up in Oregon uh, writing about my dad, I walked on his favorite beach and I was thinking about, you know, how good it'd be if there actually is eternity, which that's where my head was too, by the way. I wasn't there just like, I'm 100% sure. I was just like, it'd be really good if I get to see him again. It'd be good if he got to have a dad who loved him in God. That'd be really good. I wasn't sure, but I was hoping that it wasn't all for nothing, all of his pain, all of mine, that it mattered. And I distinctly feel like it matters. Our lives, our losses, our love, our relationships, they only make sense if this life matters. And all the suffering we we go through isn't a waste, that it actually leads somewhere to a God who understands. And that's what the early church and many Christians who've suffered have concluded is the meaning of John 20. What does it mean that the God we worship was crowned as king as he suffered on a cross and made it a point to show his disciples that after his resurrection, he still had his scars? Jesus is the only one of the gods or religious leaders who is both powerful enough to promise redemption, but humble enough to bear our pain. The pain our sin deserves, the pain of the guilty, and the pain inflicted by others, the pain of the innocent. Elaine Pagels, when she lost her son to an illness, said she she had come to Christ at a Billy Graham crusade. And she said it began to not make any sense that someone would sacrifice their son. But Jesus volunteered. Jesus didn't just get thrown down into the earth to suffer by the will of a God who was disconnected. Jesus loved the Father and the people who had been made in his image, and he volunteered. He came in and bore our guilt and bore our pain out of love. And he is worth holding on to. There is no other like him. You know what it means that Thomas and the disciples saw him glorified with scars? It means that what Thomas experienced is promised to us as well. Thomas saw and he was convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt and he felt a happiness, a blessedness. And the scriptures tell us that one day we'll see him face to face. Right now we see like looking into a dimly lit mirror. You know what that means? I think it's when you look into a mirror in a dark room, you sort of see you like obscured, right? But someday we'll see Jesus face to face. We won't just see ourselves and our doubts and our pain and our struggles reflected back at us a million times. 
We'll see him. And we'll have the ability, we'll have the faith to say, my Lord and my God, probably for the first time wholeheartedly. My dad loved country and bluegrass. That was one of his faith connections. I've been watching Ken Burns country music and a lot of that music's born out of struggle and doubt. And a long time ago, I heard this Jillian Welch song called By the Mark. Jillian Welch was adopted in New York City. Her mom was in college. Her dad was a musician. He came through. They slept together. Dad left. She never met him. Mom gave her up for adoption. And she wrote about John 20. When I cross over, I will shout and sing. I will know my Savior by the mark where the nails have been. By the mark where the nails have been, by the sign on his precious skin. I will know my Savior when I come to him by the mark where the nails have been. A man of riches may claim a crown of jewels, but the king of heaven can be told from the prince of fools. By the mark where the nails have been, by the sign upon his precious skin, I will know my Savior when I come to him by the mark where the nails have been. On Calvary Mountain, where they made him suffer so, all my sin was paid for a long, long time ago by the mark where the nails have been, by the sign on his precious skin, I will know my Savior when I come to him by the mark where the nails have been. Only a suffering Savior can save people who know sorrow and struggle and give them real hope. Which is why Jesus' discipleship tool is his last supper. And he just tells us to keep coming back over and over to a broken body. And to blood that was spilled. And we're to remember that it was a suffering Savior, that it was his broken body, that it was his love, that it was his actual presence, it was that he volunteered, that he came, that he took the weight of what we deserve. He took the weight of what people do to innocent folks that damages them. He took it all upon himself. He understands, he's felt it, he's paid for it, he's borne it on himself. And he said, this is what you proclaim to the world until I return to take you to the place that I've prepared for you. We're going to do three things. If you believe that, even just a little bit, even just a little bit, gather around the table and proclaim that he is your Lord and he is your God. We have giving in the back, and that is not just a thing to do because we need money. It's a thing to do if you belong to him. And we're going to sing. And we're going to sing about what he's bought for us and about the gift that he offers us in giving us even just a little bit of faith. So let's 
stand and sing together and partake of his body and his blood.